0: We've all heard the line that sugar is the new tobacco. Some countries and jurisdictions have implemented a tax on sugar-sweetened beverages as a means to curb consumption of added sugars. But is a soda tax the best policy intervention to combat the negative effects of excess sugar consumption? Some argue that such a tax could have unintended detrimental effects for certain vulnerable populations. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Today, I'm speaking with two authors of an analysis article published in CMAJ that looks at a proposed Canadian sugar tax through a social justice lens. Prof. Natalie Riediger is an assistant professor in the Department of Community Health Sciences and on Gomazan Research at the Indigenous Institute of Health and Healing at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. Professor Andrea Bombach. Is an assistant professor in the School of Health Sciences at Central Michigan University in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. They're joining me today to discuss their article. Welcome, Natalie and Andrea. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start with the proposed tax on sugar sweetened beverages or sugar tax. What is it, and why do many organizations like the Canadian Diabetes Association and the Heart and Stroke Foundation want to implement a sugar tax? What's their hope, Andrea? The tax is intended to help reduce obesity and diabetes rates by cutting down on
1: sugar-sweetened beverage purchasing and thereby its consumption. The tax recommended by the World Health Organization is an excise tax, and an excise tax is imposed on the person or business who sells canned or bottled sugar-sweetened beverages. So the WHO recommends a tax of 30 to 50%, and some of the sugar-sweetened beverages that are included in existing policies are soda or pop, which would include diet sodas, sport or energy drinks, sweetened tea, waters containing natural or artificial sweeteners, beverages containing 50% or less fruit and vegetable juice, and all other preparations known as soft drinks. There are some important omissions as well, including things like fountain drinks, unsweetened tea, coffee, beverages containing milk infant formula, soy, rice, or similar milk substitutes, uh, carbonated or non-carbonated water that contains no sweeteners, non-alcoholic drink mixes, and soft drinks uh, when they're mixed and sold in an alcoholic drink are excluded from the tax. And the amount of the tax that's actually been implemented has varied across the districts.
0: So the organizations that support this tax, are they hoping that as a result of implementation of this excise tax, the population at large will consume less excess sugar?
1: Yes, that's the hope.
0: Taxing sugar has been compared to the taxes on tobacco. Can you, Natalie, explain the parallel between the two?
2: Well, I think there's probably two main comparisons. And and one is that uh, tobacco and sugar have been shown to be associated with adverse health outcomes. And so this is a behavior that public health organizations are interested in targeting. The other important parallel uh, is the role of industry and that industry is viewed as engaging in unscrupulous marketing, uh, which hooks consumers, and consumers are framed as victims that are generally una- either unaware of the health implications of the consumption or engaging in this behavior, um, and that, that they are possibly also unaware that they're being duped by um, the industry, either big tobacco or big sugar.
0: Given the perceived huge success of uh, tobacco taxation, it's easy to understand why people would be in favor of a sugar-sweetened beverage tax. However, in your analysis article published in CMAJ, you've taken a critical look at the sugar tax and you argue that it may cause more harm than good if not implemented properly for some populations. Andrea, could you elaborate on that for us?
1: One of the issues is that the tax is going to carry um, probably a disproportionate socioeconomic burden on lower socioeconomic individuals. Uh, And in fact, smoking-related taxes, we tended to see that the benefits of putting those into place Uh, weren't necessarily as evident in those particular populations either. So we didn't necessarily see the benefits and behaviors that we thought we would, but at the same time it does carry a disproportionate socioeconomic burden on these populations that are already likely encountering other kinds of structural barriers and socioeconomic barriers um, that are gonna predispose them to non-communicable disease anyways. Overall, what this might do is create a greater financial drain and stressor that seems likely to actually widen health disparities. And we know that widening health disparities is obviously going to have um, a detrimental effect on these particular communities, but also that this tends to have a detrimental effect on overall population health when you see these wide gaps.
0: You go into this in some depth in the article and you give examples of of unintended consequences of tobacco taxation, which is really enlightening. It was certainly for me. Some countries and U.S. states have already implemented um, a sugar tax or a sugar sweetened beverage tax. Are there any lessons that we've been able to learn from what's happened in these areas so far?
2: Uh, There have been, I think, a lot of lessons uh, that can be learned. And there will be a lot, I think, in the coming years, because uh, the tax is increasingly being implemented. So the UK has uh, recently implemented their tax and South Africa. So there will be a lot of opportunity. Um, I think for organizations that are supportive of the tax, two of the most common examples, I think, that are referred to are Berkeley and, and Mexico. Uh, And we discussed that in the CMAJ paper. I thought I would take this opportunity to maybe uh, give some examples that maybe are not talked about as much and and one that's very recent. Uh, So the first is Denmark. uh, And Denmark had experience with both a fat tax and a tax on soft drinks, both of which ended up being repealed. Um, And some of the problems that they encountered were cross-border shopping which ended up leading to lower sales in Danish stores because people ended up going to neighboring countries without a tax uh, to buy their food, uh, which then led to job losses. So repealing the tax was done as a way to um, bring jobs back. And they found that there was no change in consumption uh, as a result of the tax. It wasn't it wasn't working and it wasn't helping. And then the other recent example, very recent, is Cook County, which includes Chicago. So this is one of the largest, if not the largest counties uh, in the U.S. Uh, that had implemented a tax. And it was only implemented from August 2nd to December 1st, and it was repealed uh, very shortly after. Um, and it was highly controversial. There were a lot of protests, uh, and that ended up being what um, had the tax repealed. There are also there are many issues in Cook County uh and socioeconomic status is is one of them nearly 20% of people in Cook County receive food stamps. Uh and so this is a county I I think that differs quite a bit from some place like Berkeley um which has had the tax for the longest amount of time in the US. Uh there are also concerns about um the tax not being uh, evenly applied because some beverages were exempt, and sweetened coffee was was uh, brought up as an example there, and we talk about that uh, in the paper as well. And so, uh, I think we need to learn from the lessons of uh, just jurisdictions where the tax has failed, because I think
0: those uh, examples have been ignored. That's interesting that that there's now a growing number of examples where a tax has been implemented and then repealed because before we were just hearing exciting stories of success. Right. Can you talk a bit about stigmatization of marginalized populations and how a sugar tax might make this stigma worse? You've talked about a few examples, you've alluded to it when you talked about Cook County, you said um, that, that a lower socioeconomic average compared to Berkeley, for example. In your article, you give a few more. Can you talk about which beverages are tax targets and how this might stigmatize marginalized populations?
1: Well, one thing that we need to consider is that when we're talking about issues of weight and we're talking about diabetes and we're talking about lifestyles, we're already talking about things that tend to be framed in terms of moralism and in terms of personal responsibility. Uh, And we know that being perceived of being uh, the higher weight status already carries a stigma, and there's lots of lessons that we can learn from this when we're thinking about how we want to be approaching, how we portray particular groups and their lifestyles. For example, we know that with respect to weight, it's associated with adverse health outcomes, including incident diabetes, including weight gain, disordered eating, avoidance of physical activity, and medical care. Um, When we talk about smoking, uh, again, that's often used as being kind of a comparator when we're talking about um, sugar-sweetened beverage taxes. We know that Um, Stigmatization of people who are already smoking can lead to unwillingness to quit. So we need to be careful about how we frame sugar-sweetened beverages and who it is that we are depicting as being sort of the target populations. Often things like weight stigma carries with it gender, class and race implications. And we can see this about how we talk about the kinds of food that people are eating, um, like Dr. Riediger was stating about sort of how this tends to be framed as being a concern of lower income individuals. And we're focusing so much on soda. And these kinds of taxes are often colloquial called sodas but we're not necessarily focusing on things like frappuccinos Um, Mm -hmm. we happen to know that soda does tend to be um, consumed more frequently by people that have lower socioeconomic status um, whereas things like sugared uh, coffee tends to be drunk more by those who have um, higher socioeconomic status News articles and visual depictions are often framed and coded to imply that ethnic minority groups are burdening the system with their higher weights and their poor habits. Uh, for example, and even though the epidemiological picture is more complex, people of higher weight are often portrayed as having sensibilities and tastes that are stereotyped as low class. Um, for example, a scholar at the University of Idaho, Russell Mioff, gives the example of how like, we have the middle-class, gracious, and polite persona of Melissa McCarthy in interviews, but then she often portrays very grotesque, Characters on something like Saturday Night Live. So, what we're doing is we're portraying the image that junk food and sugar are often being consumed by people of lower socioeconomic status, ethnic minorities, and women, even though we know that individuals from all different kinds of social strata and demographic groups behave in all different kinds of ways and are equally susceptible to different kinds of disease, apart from the structural barriers that they might be encountering. So, part of what we might be seeing is what's been called lifestyle drift, which is that a reform seems to be a broader environmental change, but then it rapidly funnels down to individualizing people's lifestyles uh, and enforcing the impression that a person's health is wholly within their control uh, and is their responsibility as long as they behave sort of appropriately. And this is really important when we consider the fact that, again, this tax might be carrying a disproportionate effect on people that are already encountering um, the burdens of lower socioeconomic status and then they're also potentially being portrayed um, as individuals that need to be um, sort of fixed and their lifestyles need to be fixed more so than other individuals but that isn't taking into account that broader context and we know that this stigma really has been shown repeatedly to have very detrimental effects on individuals well-being.
0: Natalie, you work with and conduct research among indigenous communities in Canada. How might a sugar tax affect our indigenous populations specifically?
2: Well, first, I think it's important to remember that uh, indigenous people in in Canada and communities are are quite heterogeneous. Um, and uh, I think in terms of epidemiology, we don't really know we don't have a lot of information on dietary data, although what we do have, it, it insinuates that Indigenous populations generally have higher consumption of sugar sweetened beverages, specifically pop, uh, and, and potentially more in, in northern remote communities where, uh, communities have lack of drinking water. This is a very, um, you know, high profile problem that we've had in Canada for many, many years. And also that Indigenous populations have, uh, higher adverse health outcomes, especially diabetes, um, and both are highly related to socioeconomic status, which is also lower among Indigenous populations. And so when we're thinking about equity and uh, reducing health inequalities, if a policy does not work for certain populations, it's something we really need to consider. And uh, the issue for Indigenous populations is quite complex because we also need to think about jurisdiction, uh, which nobody is talking about. First Nation communities uh, in Canada are sovereign nations. They are different jurisdictions. Uh, And we know from Denmark that, and also from Cook County in Chicago, when you have uh, different jurisdictions implementing taxes differently, uh, you end up, uh, having cross border shopping. And this is something that we have seen now with tobacco and, and contraband tobacco and, and how that's played out. I think politically there's too much to discuss, uh, in one podcast. Uh, and, and when we're thinking about effectiveness, I, there's a story that came up last year, um, in CBC and I wasn't able to, uh, discuss this in the CMAJ article just there's there's too much to say on the topic um but they reported that there were youth who were bidding and bartering for pop on Facebook in Nineveh, uh when pop supplies ran out in stores and something like two to three cans of coke went for 35 dollars and so I think that should really give us pause when we're thinking about increasing the price of food especially in places where the price is already so high and then uh Getting to Dr. Baumbach's point about stigma, Indigenous populations remain uh, very highly stigmatized as, as problem populations, that we need to get these issues under control, um, and we don't often consider stigma in our policies and, and the impact it'll have, and it's obviously very powerful, and I think especially for Indigenous populations, uh, because there is so much stigma uh, and we haven't really thought uh enough about colonialism, I think, in terms of how that has contributed and maintains the high rates of diabetes. Uh CMAJ published an article, I think it was last year, about the impacts of residential school and hunger and diabetes, uh, which is a very important paper and, and further fleshes out, you know, how colonialism has impacted the health of Indigenous people. But I think we need to remember that, Residential schools and 60 scoops and all these policies are symptoms of a deeper problem, not the problem itself. Uh, the problem is colonialism. And I think this underlying belief that we as privileged groups and settlers know best and, uh, we need to be careful about how we're using policies, uh, to control. And, uh, that's ultimately what, uh, I think a sugar tax is, is attempting to do. And so we need to uh, consider the power relations involved in that.
0: And even such a practical thing, I think you, you, you do bring this up in your article, the practical concern of boil water advisories in um, very many Indigenous communities where actually drinking water is unsafe and um, alternatives to water become necessary.
2: No, I agree. I mean,
0: there's practical, there's 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 a, a lot of complex issues uh, that we haven't thought through. I particularly like the way you've unpicked carefully in this article, the complexity of the issue, and looked at the many drivers of non-communicable diseases and the stigma that these um, folks who are disadvantaged already face. Um, so it's difficult for me to ask the next question, but I have to play devil's advocate. And if I were a proponent of the the uh, sugar-sweetened beverage tax, I might argue that a tobacco tax was effective in reducing smoking rates overall, pretty much globally, and that that outweighs the consequences like a wider socioeconomic gap or increased stigma that were the result of the tax. What would you say in response to that?
1: I would say that we have to really think about those health disparities. We know... um, Again, globally and through decades of research, that health disparities tend to worsen overall population health, apart from maybe the top uh, 0.5 to 1% um, of the population in terms of socioeconomic status. So one thing that we don't want to be doing is putting into place policies that might um, unintentionally exasperate those health gaps that we've been discussing. I think it's also important that we remember sort of the confluence of forces that came together to reduce smoking rates, Uh, including sometimes what I think we forget is that there's exceptionally strong evidence that tobacco is linked to cancer. And right now we're doing research studies that really sort of explore the role of sugar in health. And I think that that's fantastic. And I think that the more that we know about that and the more that we disseminate those findings, um, we might have alternatives to putting into place a tax such as this. We know from consumer research that people are already turning away from sugar. Uh, They're identifying it as something that they try and avoid the way they used to look at fat. Um, And so I think that those are all positive developments that are occurring without having to necessarily put into place um, this tax or without having to think about, um, you know, the idea of sort of mobilizing stigma. And I think we also need to make a serious value judgment about the role of something like stigma in public health. I think it's very easy to dismiss it if you aren't part of a marginalized group. Um, But we have to think about what stigma actually is. It is something that is dehumanizing it impacts on somebody's dignity and it impacts on their sense of belonging and it results often in the internalization of stigma which has independent health effects even to just experience of stigma Uh, and we know that this is already associated with those negative health outcomes so mobilizing stigma as a public health um instrument is something that we have to, I think, make even just a value judgment on. It's also a very arbitrary form of social control in that we know that it has these consequences, but at the same time, we don't necessarily ever hold anybody accountable for creating this sort of defaming social environment. Uh, it's just something that sort of enters into the uh, socio-cultural context in which individuals live. And I think you can see some of those repercussions when we're talking specifically about indigenous population.
0: I agree that even among public health experts who are uh, proponents of tobacco taxes, there is a widespread acknowledgement that reductions in smoking rates has happened through... A combination of measures and not just one. And I think um, I I would agree with you that, that focusing too heavily on this one particular measure as the most important one that we can use to decrease um, sugar consumption is probably misguided. So that brings me to a question, could, in your opinion, could a sugar tax ever work in Canada?
2: Well, I think, that depends on what you mean by work uh, and and being successful. I think as Dr. Bomback discussed, if the purpose is to shame without anyone or organization being accountable, then yes, I think it probably will work. I think people might start to feel bad and, and there might be, uh, you know, social judgment passed when people are walking down the street drinking a Slurpee. Uh, if by work you mean generate revenue, then I think, yes, it will work. And that, uh, and that is also a very um, important part of this tax that, it, you know, is another aspect that we didn't discuss a lot, but uh, revenue is, is important. Um, if by work you mean reduce intake, then I think maybe that depends on each population and person. Uh, I think we're likely to see a reduction in intake among those already having a low intake or better health, uh, specifically those are that are high socioeconomic status. Um, and that's what we observed with smoking. And we've already seen that with sugar-sweetened beverages. Sugar-sweetened beverage intake has decreased in Canada over the last number of years. Pop, I should say. Uh, in the paper, we discuss how how sweetened coffee has actually increased. But um, as Dr. Bonbach mentioned, there's a lot of uh, forces that come into play when when intake or behaviors are changing, and they are always changing, and so that's uh, an important consideration. And getting back to your question, if by work you mean improving health outcomes and reducing health inequalities, I would say no. Uh, I don't think this policy has the capacity to reduce uh, health inequalities. And I think another important consideration when we're talking about if a tax can work or be successful, I, need, I think we need to think about whether it's sustainable and will it be repealed um, because we've seen that in other jurisdictions. And I think that's highly dependent on the government uh, as well as uh, populations, um, you know, the, the role that we feel government should play, because I think this is more so important in the U.S. and why so many attempts to implement tax have failed uh, generally, Americans are not as tax receptive as Canadians, but uh, that's always changing too. And with different governments, I think that's something we need to think about because everything costs. Even though we're going to implement, if a tax is implemented, implementing something costs administratively. Um, and if it's going to be repealed in four years, then we
0: need to think about that too. Absolutely. So, uh, so really important to think about the. The complexity of policymaking. And in that in that light, just a final word, I think we would all of us acknowledge that there is some sort of urgency in the medical and health system and health policy sphere to do something to curb obesity, diabetes, non-communicable diseases from a policy perspective. How should our country do that? I think that there's...
1: Um two sort of important areas to think about in terms of that. I think one thing that we need to do is we need to spend more time talking with the individuals who tend to be the targets of these policies and programs um, and learning from them what is happening in their lives that they think um, should be the sources of our reforms. Um, What are the most effective ways of Uh, redressing ill health in their communities uh, instead of, as Dr. Riediger was mentioning, with respect to power relations, necessarily coming in with the idea that you are the expert and that you necessarily have uh, the answer in what are often very um specific cultural and um, specific geographic uh, and specific intersectional communities. Um, often we need to think more locally, I think, and uh, in terms more so of that kind of specific historical context when we're approaching policymaking. I think also what we need to consider is the fact that we know that one of the most important if not the most important determinant of health is socioeconomic status. So we need to talk seriously about the distribution of our resources and the social determinants of health. Um, Dr. Riediger was talking about water quality and food security, but we also need to discuss other things like disparities in education, um, or the effect that job insecurity can have on individuals Um, income, and especially when you're talking about something like um, purchasing sugar-sweetened beverages, um, transportation with respect to people's lives as well, because people can't necessarily always be purchasing things that don't necessarily have a long shelf life. We need to be talking um, about these issues, and we need to be bringing this up more frequently, I feel, than we have been recently when well, we've tended to focus more so on personal responsibility and these sort of individualistic behaviors and whether or not we can get people to drink less soda for example by you know elevating the price maybe we can get individuals um, to be living lives that they consider to be healthy by ensuring that you know they have a steady income on an ongoing basis and that they have access uh, to the foods and the beverages that they need to be living.
0: Well, thank you for this absolutely fascinating discussion. Um, This article is a really brave one and looks at an important issue in some depth. It's been great to be speaking to you today, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I've been speaking with Natalie Reidegger, Assistant Professor in the Department of Community Health Sciences and on Garmers Research at the University of Manitoba and Andrea Bomback, Assistant Professor in the School of Health Sciences at Central Michigan University. They co-authored an analysis article published in CMAJ. To read the article, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. While you're there, you can browse and listen to our many past episodes. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.